This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Wednesday, March 13th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, this college scandal has really uh, had a big effect on me and I think you, the listeners in America. Two theories on that. One, it really is news. It's so unusual. And it also comports with our worst suspicions on how power works and uh, how power is wielded at the highest echelons of people who have never had anything that they can't put a price tag on. But the second reason is it just has nothing to do with Donald Trump. Isn't it kind of nice? It has some weird villains, Felicity Huffman, who we all used to like. So I have three thoughts on that. Three stray thoughts that I didn't get to yesterday. One is this. Love of children is actually a selfish act. I know. I have children. I love them. But when you think about it, loving your children and, quote, doing anything for your children is often thought of by the person who says it and expresses that sentiment. It's often thought of as selfless. But it really is selfish. From a Darwinian perspective, it's selfish. Oh, my progeny, my seed gets to go on. And even though while it's other-directed, it's also, in a way, self-directed. If your children do well, it reflects on you. But it's also very insular and tribal. If this small group of people does well, then my people do well. We give ourselves the excuse, oh, I'm living for other people or through other people. But when those other people are our children, I think we are being, okay, if not entirely selfish, then more on the selfish side of the continuum than the selfless side. It's complicated. People can be very, very selfish when it comes to their children. So then when you see other people, maybe in your family who are selfless, you tend to give them kudos and credit. That is true. But I just think the notions of, of generosity and selfishness are very complex when it comes to the kids. Two, a college brand is worth more than a college education. I was going to put this in the spiel yesterday, but it was getting long. Let's do a thought experiment. You ready? Let's take two good schools where we all think that one is better than the other and where just as a provable fact, one is harder to get into than the other. I was thinking of Cornell and SUNY Binghamton. If you're on the West Coast, you could do this with uh, Stanford and UCLA. All right? Take the entire freshman class at Stanford and swap them for the entire freshman class at UCLA. All right, so some kids got into UCLA, but they're going to take classes from Stanford professors. Stanford professors are going to fill their heads with knowledge. Everything that they actually learn, the point of college, everything they actually learn is going to come from the Stanford faculty. But then when they graduate, they get a UCLA diploma. And it works the other way, right? The Stanford kids get a UCLA education, but a Stanford diploma. Let me ask you. Who's better off in life? Let's say we norm it for their advantages coming in, right? Stanford's a private school. They probably have richer kids going there. But who's better off in life? Is it 
the brand that's more important or the education? I think it's the brand. I think if you took all the freshman class at SUNY Binghamton, which could do all the work at Cornell, and you give them a Cornell education, but they only got to brand themselves as SUNY Binghamton graduates, they'd be ever so slightly worse off than the Cornell kids. And by the way, the actual life differences in earnings, in connections, and anything else between those sets of schools that I cited, really, really minimal, much less than, say, a 400000 bribe would indicate. And three, imagine what else these rich people are getting up to. Did you have this thought? I mean, I liked Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy, and I understand that getting into college is angsty, but I read all those transcripts and no one at any time said, I can't believe I'm doing this. People were nervous. People were nervous about getting caught. People asked the uh, uh, wired conspirator number one, is it really going to work? How's it work? One man even said, look, it's not the moral implications of this I'm worried about. It's getting caught. That was honest. But you just have to imagine if these people were caught this time and on tape, they talked about this going on for 20 years. Just imagine the mindset of there's something I want. They're not putting a price tag on it. How do I find a way to get it? And that, I think, leads to a lot of the populism and the disquiet and the anti-millionaires and billionaires sentiment that is roiling this country. And maybe rightly so. On the show today, I spiel about the Manafort sentencing, but zoom out a little, get a little philosophical about justice. But first, you saw those fire Festival documentaries, right? You were in one, weren't you? I think that's how it works. Okay, if you weren't, and I wasn't, and I wasn't on Grand Exuma, let's at least talk to someone who was. Maria Konnikova comes by and she plays Is That Bullshit with us. But she was one of the experts in one of those documentaries talking about these millennials getting scammed. So our subject today for Is That Bullshit is scams and millennials. Are they correlated? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Perhaps you saw the documentary or documentaries about all those rich kids who went to an island and ate a cheese sandwich. Well, that was the fire Festival, and uh, they were scammed. And so the question is, is there something about them, maybe about their generation, that made them more susceptible to a scam? Joining me now is Maria Konnikova, who plays Is That Bullshit with us. She is the author of several books, including The Biggest Bluff, about poker. Her last book was about con men. It was called The Confidence Game. And that is why Maria was in one of those documentaries as an expert, not as someone who was scammed. You weren't on the island, were you, Maria? Um, I was totally on the island. <laughs> I mean, I got a new bikini for the occasion. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, drinking pina coladas. I was. So you had a better experience than I was 95% I was ready to go. of the fire Festival <laughs> attendees. Um, who was it? Was it Major Laser that, that drew you to <laughs> the Grand Bahamas? 
Was it Ja Rule? Can you name a Ja Rule song? I probably cannot name a Ja Rule song. To be in the documentary, they did not ask you to name a Ja Rule song? They did not. Wow. Okay. So there were two documentaries, and I have to say. They did know, they did ask if I knew who the Kardashians were. They did? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. You're like, yes, I'm alive today. So I do have to say, and I say this with love, I like the one that you weren't in better, but not because you weren't in it. I just like the TikTok and how they laid it out. And if I had a problem with the one you were in, it has nothing to, well, it has a little to do with your contribution in that they were seeking to offer a meta explanation of why this went on. And I suppose if you're grasping for that, fine, but I wasn't as interested in that as how it went down rather than why it went down. Right. All right. So you don't... Were you paid for your involvement? No. Okay, fine. So you were just an expert who gave her expertise. Yes. And you talked about the nature of being scammed. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should probably, this is a horrible thing to admit on Mike, but I haven't actually seen the documentary <laughs> that I'm in. So I'm not 100 Hulu? Per- I no, don't, have, not, a, I don't the, have a Hulu subscription. Were you the Hulu one or the Netflix one? I was in the Hulu one. You were in the Hulu one. one. And yes. I don't have a Hulu subscription. <laughs> right. So listeners, please give me your subscription and then I can finally watch this documentary. <laughs> what if you watch like, oh yeah, that was shit. <laughs> um, so I, I talked to them for over an hour, so I'm not sure what parts of what I, I said are in the documentary. But in general, why but, I wanted to talk to you is there was a lot about this is a generation yeah. that's susceptible to being scammed, a generation that's very much online, very much driven by image. Yeah. And so I, my internal monologue was like, yes, but isn't every generation? Yeah. But the images are changes. But, you know, kids 15 to 25-year-olds want to, ever since the category of teenager or yeah. young adult was invented, want to seem cool to their friends. So I don't know how different that is. Absolutely. And I, I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. And I think it's very, very dangerous to say this generation is more prone to X because we're seeing it right now. Yeah. Right? Because you're conflating so many different things. You're conflating just the moment in history. You're conflating you analyzing this and seeing that something is changing. Mm -hmm. And I think that people do that over and over and over. So I agree with everything you said. What I will say is that when you look at the history of cons um, and their prevalence, first, I mean, cons have existed always. But you do see these sorts of curves where you see rises and kind of these golden ages of con artists and golden ages of the grift. And throughout history, these tend to happen at moments of social transition. So the first time that cons really blew up in the United States was during the gold rush and westward expansion. And it's so easy to see why, because society was just completely changing and there were no rules and people didn't know what they could believe and what they couldn't believe. And people were finding gold. I mean, people were getting rich. Just like with our current age and Instagram, there are Instagram, not just the people who invented it, but people who are influencers who have made money off of it. And it's not as if fun hasn't been had via exactly medium of instagram exactly exactly then you have kind of this leveling off and cons just kind of continue and they churn along then you have this other golden age during the industrial revolution Uh where once again a lot of there's a lot of new technology the world is changing and people are getting rich there are being you know you, you have these discoveries of natural resources you have you know people who are able to invest in new industries that didn't exist before. There are all of these opportunities. And of course, a lot of them are bogus. Yeah. But what you start seeing is this trend 
huge social disruption, right. huge changes where the frame of reference that worked before no longer is true right? because there are these new opportunities that didn't exist. You don't really know how to evaluate them. You don't know how to look at them right. critically. And you also look like an idiot if you miss out on them. Right. So this if, is a good point. Like the old way to guard yourself from a con is, you know, the, I don't know how useful line, if it seems too good to be true, it probably yes. is. Yes. But in these times of dislocation, there are all these things that seem too good to be true. And there and are True. Facebook billionaires. And, exactly. Yeah. You know, so then you have the dot-com bubble. Right. And you have all of these things happening. And so right now, actually, I think it has nothing to do with millennials and everything to do with the fact that we're going through another social transition. Huge dislocation. The impossible seems real. Exactly. So you maybe start believing more in the impossible. Exactly. Exactly. And I also think that you feel like a sucker if you have those normal guardrails up because then you don't think any of these things that really are changing the world would happen or could happen or that you should be a part of. Exactly. You don't want to be the one who's labeled as, you know, the old fogey who's just afraid, the technophobe, who is afraid of all of this new stuff and who's saying, you know, I preferred it back when none of this existed. Back when they had a concert in Woodstock, New York, and the bands actually showed up. Exactly. By the way, people died in that concert. (laughs) And it's seen as like this great cultural touchstone. We we definitely have cultural amnesia. People eat bad cheese sandwiches in this one. And he's the worst guy. We have very bad amnesia. That's right. So is there something about the guy? How much did you examine the methods of this guy, of Billy, Billy McFarland? And how much does he fit in with what you know about yeah. con artists? Um, so, so Billy is actually really it, – it's so funny. Billy is not that impressive. Yeah. Billy is someone who – knows exactly what he's doing and who knows which buttons to press. So he was very smart in realizing that one of the things that people are afraid of missing out on are being part of this kind of Instagram zeitgeist, kind of this this cool young crowd. He figured out one of the things that con artists have known through the ages, which is that individuals like to associate with the rich and powerful and pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That those are all things that are good. So some of the biggest con artists in history have been people who've pretended to be aristocrats, who've pretended to be royalty, who've pretended to be related to the Rockefellers or the Carnegies or whoever happens to be the royalty of the moment. So I'm sure we'll be seeing some fake Zuckerberg heirs <laughs> popping up soon, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so but so the- he so he identified that. And that's if you look at his marketing materials, that's exactly what they are. So he. He did that incredibly well. He didn't do anything original. He just kind of... So when you put your book together, you were looking for exceptionally good con artists or exceptionally bold ones, guys who either made a lot of money or people like you almost couldn't believe how they got away with it. He doesn't fall into any of those categories. No, he doesn't. He's in it, but he's an exceptionally prosaic con artist. Yeah. He kind of, he exemplifies everything I heard about him. People were like, oh, but did you know that in high school, you know, this happened to him? And I said, yes, absolutely. Just this fits the mold 100%. And the other thing I would say is you have to question everything he tells you about mm-hmm. what happened in high school. Right. And if you if you hear some of the people who were interviewed, they said, no, he was always popular. What are you talking about? You know, none of the – he wasn't bullied. Like, he was the bully. And you start seeing that his personal narrative and the personal narrative he sells doesn't jibe with the things that seem to have been happening historically. And that is so true. So I – I basically just gave up at some point when I was writing my book because I realized that you just you need to make choices because when you're fact checking a con artist, 
you have to fact check literally every single sentence out of their mouth. Yeah. So when you say and you gave up, what did you give up? On? I gave I gave up on interviewing them and oh, trying yeah. to kind of get because you were fully because that would get you further from the exactly, truth rather than closer. exactly yeah. exactly. So the the one oh so you were in the documentary that he was in, that he which was in. maybe so is I, not actually that illuminating or illustrative. Maybe actually, that got us further from the truth. Uh, exactly. Acknowledging that you haven't watched it yet. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think I think that's right because they're so good at crafting narratives. That's their greatest skill. The greatest skill of a con artist is to craft a story that makes sense and that you want to be a part of, that gives you hope, that will mesh with your view of the world and of the, what the world can be. And so when you ask them about themselves, that's a really dangerous proposition because they're going to give you a compelling story and you are going to want to believe it. And so it's almost counterproductive. You don't want to see what they can justify. <laughs> you want to see kind of what happened and you can hear Billy say all the as much as you want, oh, well, my motives were pure. And then you realize that while he's out on bail, he starts running another scam. Yeah. And you say, um, this does not seem like someone whose motives were pure. Right. So what you're telling me is an intuition I had, which is that the interesting, the compelling things about the Fire Festival have almost nothing to do with the quote-unquote mastermind who is in yes. charge of it. It has to do with, I think, the compelling elements were there were beautiful people mm-hmm. who we have schadenfreude about. Also, the cost to them was more comical than tragic. Yeah. So we could really engage in just enjoying the hell out of the fact that they lost money but not lives and not, you know, their health. So it kind of was this confluence of everyone having a good laugh at the expense of rich people. And then off to the side was this very prosaic, as you say, con artist not running the whole thing. If he really was a con artist, he'd have gotten away with it. Yeah, I, the best yeah. con artists, whenever anyone asks me, you know, who are the best con artists, I say, we probably don't know who they are. Yeah, and then you throw down a smoke pellet and you... Exactly, and then I the disappear. Yeah, yeah. And then I disappear. <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the best con artists of our time is not someone like Billy. I'd be much more inclined to pick someone like Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. Someone who actually got billions of dollars and managed to do it from people who are very smart investors. And, and there definitely is an Elizabeth Holmes who... Who hasn't been caught. That's right. There are and so who, many... Elis- and we think that their company is legit. Exactly. There, That is definitely out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm willing to bet anything. And there's probably... I don't know if this could be true, but there might even be a con artist, a Billy type, and somehow it worked out yeah, for him. Like absolutely. Like he looked into it. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I think that... It has. It doesn't have anything to do with millennials. People love to say, "Oh, millennials are X or yeah. Y," and I think that that's just an easy way out. I think this has to do with people. I mean, humans want to believe in these types of things, and then we get to, as you say, experience Schadenfreude and say, "Ha ha ha!" You know, nothing. Just look at that. That's why we love glorifying some con artists. And when you say, you know, no one really, nothing bad happened, well, what about all of the people who actually live on Grand Exuma and all of the people? Right, Like, there actually was a very, very bad human cost to this, too. There was a big population that was affected quite negatively. If, though... I think some of these things are true and some of these things are stereotyped, but here are the characteristics of millennials. They are on screens a lot. They have FOMO (laughs) more than other generations. They perhaps have a lower attention span. Uh, Are those things that correlate to a capacity for being conned? I think the FOMO, absolutely, because you... The FOMO makes you more open to different opportunities. And being open to opportunities is something actually 
that is actually something that can correlate with susceptibility to cons. Well, because maybe, and also maybe millennials don't actually have fear of missing out. It's just that there's so much they're aware of so much more that's going on. So so the other thing I, I do want to say is that I think that we're, what we're seeing right now, yes, is kind of one of these waves where a lot of things are happening that make things like Fire Festival possible. Right. But we're also seeing a shift where we're going to be seeing more cons because the internet has facilitated conning to such a great extent. Because, first of all, it makes more people into possible victims because the con artists have access to all of this information about all of us. But it also enables them to craft fake identities. And we don't have the tools to wade through everything and to figure out what's real and what's not. I mean, if I suddenly create this Instagram profile with pictures of all of these wonderful celebrities, if I am a master of Photoshop and can Photoshop myself into some of these images, if I know enough that I know exactly which social networks I need to be on and who I need to connect to, all of a sudden I can create this persona that seems plausible. Right. And that, I think that is actually one of the things that's happening right now is our bullshit detectors are kind of being overloaded. We can't figure out, oh, is this legit or not? Because it's harder than, you know, it was in the past. Because in the past, it's much more difficult to get people to believe that you're a Carnegie heir. Yeah. Back in the day, you have to actually figure out a way to make that seem plausible, to have some sort of connection to Carnegie, to be seen going into his house, to kind of have some of these things. Right. And so you have to be really ingenious. These days, you don't. Because it's so easy to craft a persona. And so I don't know that it's that millennials are more gullible. It's that a lot of the proof these days is becoming more and more difficult to disentangle the actual proof from the fake that seems the same. So if our question is, is that bullshit millennials more susceptible to being conned? Your answer is? I I think that's bullshit. All right. Maria Konnikova is the author of, most relevantly for this discussion, The Confidence Game, but also the forthcoming The Biggest Bluff. She spoke to us from an island formerly owned by Pablo Escobar. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now, the spiel. Paul Manafort is getting seven years in the who's gal. I do not know if that's fair. I do know the original judge or the first judge to sentence him, Judge Ellis, ignored the government guidelines and gave him four years of what could have been 19 to 24 and a half. Those were the sentencing guidelines. So what fills that gap? What fills the four-fifths gap between what Manafort got and what he could have or should have been sentenced to? The judge says it's that he lived a blameless life. That seems to be the worst explanation I can think of. Now a New York judge, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, has tagged on an additional few years. So it turns out that Paul Manafort will be serving seven or so years in the big house, probably the medium house, if you have to be technical about it. There is outrage about this because of what Paul Manafort did, because of who he is, because of who he helped along the way. I do have to say that the concurrently and consecutively distinctions, it seems like there is a gigantic discrepancy there, and it's all in the hands, it's all discretionary on the part of the judges. They talk about sentencing guidelines that never end in like five to 10. Sometimes they do, but they're always like 
19 to 24 and a half or 81 months to 96 months. They're pretty specific. But then they say, and these two sentences can be served concurrently or consecutively. That's gigantic. If you have two different judges giving a sentence of zero to 10 years and the second judge gives the sentence and it can be either concurrent or consecutive, you're basically saying, all right, the 10-year sentence that you give can actually be a 20-year sentence or a zero-year sentence. It's not true. There is There are some mandates and you can't always decide if it's consecutive or concurrent, but that seems to be the biggest bit of discretion, bigger even than the actual number of years, the biggest bit of discretion that a judge has. I'm not against it, just pointing it out. There was anguish at this short sentence. I understand the anguish. Paul Manafort is a a bad man, good head of hair, but bad set of morals. Something of a traitor. Let's not say traitor. That's in the Constitution. It can be executed. He's traitor-us, traitor-ish. And he did break laws that have a 24 and a half year maximum, right? But here we are in 2019 in this time when we're rethinking criminal justice. At least people who think about criminal justice are rethinking criminal justice. And we're mostly thinking about it in the same way, that our emphasis or definition of justice has been too cruel over the years. Now, maybe mostly we're doing this as it pertains to the marginal people in our society, as it pertains to poor people, as it pertains to people of color. And we've seen so many reports from prosecutors and defendants of defendants who've committed very, very minor crimes that are getting harsher sentences than Paul Manafort. But underlying this entire reckoning of what it means to be just is humanity. We are trying to inject more humanity into the sentencing process. Now, sometimes we say, look at the sentence that this rich guy got and look at the sentence that this poor guy got, and they should be more similar. But more similar usually doesn't mean, therefore, we should always give the poor guy the rich guy's sentence. In general, I think what it means is they should come closer together, which means the rich guy's sentence, the privileged guy's sentence, the powerful guy's sentence should come down, just maybe not as much as the unpowerful guy's sentence. I was thinking about all of this as I was listening to the Still Processing podcast Because there I heard some of the very same people, or one of the hosts of that podcast, Jenna Wortham, arguing about sentencing across the board when it pertains to members of vulnerable communities, which is fine and fair and proper. So what she was talking about specifically was the Chicago cop, Jason Van Dyke, who was sentenced to 81 months for the murder of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. Jason Van Dyke fairly recently got sentenced to seven years in prison. Yeah, he did. He did. And it's a small victory. Of course, though, that punishment does not fit the crime. A teenager is still dead. He didn't get to graduate from high school. So there's that. Because in the grander scheme of things, that conviction is the anomaly. Like, there's so many more examples in this contemporary moment and throughout history where actual evidence is not enough. Wortham also expressed outrage that his defense lawyers used a technique bordering on chicanery to try to convince the jury not to believe what they saw with their own lying eyes. The police officer's defense team essentially uses top-of-the-line CGI technology to make a Sims 4 video of what they say went down, and they essentially make this video to try to justify the 16 bullets, to justify what the police officer said was an aggressive lunging at him. And they, they basically were like, well, we know that the footage footage 
shows him walking away, but the officer experienced Laquan walking towards him, Mm -hmm. even though that's not what your eyes see. But Jenna Wortham would be the first to advocate for defendants having access to proper defense counsel. So when you get a proper defense counsel, maybe pulling the only tricks that defense counsel could, you say it's unjust or wrong. Justice should be determined by the outcome of the case, not the tactics used during the processing of the case to try to maybe get a more lenient outcome for one's defendant. Anyway, it should also be noted that those defense tactics didn't work. He was, he was found guilty, sentenced to 81 months. It is totally legitimate to talk about the gap between the justice for the rich and the poor and the powerful and the powerless and the black and the white. And maybe you could say our definition of good justice means harsher treatment for the wealthy. I don't think it does, though. I think it means much less harsh treatment for the poor. I think it means much more humanity and leniency for the powerless. But other than an emotional sense of vengeance, I don't think there's a good argument that we should be going much harder on the wealthy, except maybe in cases when we don't prosecute financial crimes that have a broad impact on society. We talk about country club prisons for people who are white-collar criminals. But, you know, country club prisons are basically what Scandinavia calls their harshest prisons. Their other prisons are what America calls essentially dorms. In Denmark, prisoners cook for themselves, wash their own clothes, and often leave for the day. Well, maybe it's not a dorm. I didn't cook for myself in the dorm. No hot plates. Is our discussion of criminal justice a discussion of me and not for they or make it a my people and not their people? I understand the frustration and I understand the temptation to put the two forms of justice side by side and to point out how much worse the powerless have it. True. But is the best expression of that wanting to crush the powerful with even greater fury? I understand the emotion. Is it the best expression of the true definition of justice? There are really good arguments, by the way, about why black and brown and just poor convicts should be given lighter sentences and let out of jail earlier. Because, for instance, if a purpose of incarceration is to protect the community by keeping potential criminals in jail, once criminals age out of criminal age or just enter into old age, it makes no sense to keep them behind bars for the most part. Paul Manafort is already in old age. Paul Manafort will not be committing more crimes, except maybe of the fashion kind. If justice should be driven, not by the inflamed passions of the moment, but by cool-headed, moral, and intellectual judiciousness, I think the ire against the leniency of the Paul Manafort suffering is put into stark relief. And finally, there's this. I would have liked Paul Manafort to have gotten 10 or 20 years. I would. But I also think there's a strong likelihood that I'm wrong about this. Because as I flash forward to 2026, and Paul Manafort is getting out of prison, will my blood then be boiling? Or will he seem more like Chuck Colson or G. Gordon Liddy or one of the Watergate figures who are disgraced and pathetic? I would have liked the book thrown at Paul Manafort. But what I would like right now in the moment, and what actual justice is, may be two different things. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist they have led otherwise blameless lives, unless you count the excessive snacking at the desk. 
TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, has a collection of ostrich suits. Oh, no, not suits for her made of ostriches. Suits for ostriches made of her. The gist, we would like to apologize for the strong implication that senior producer TJ Raphael quilts suits of human flesh for the use of flightless birds. Nothing is further from the truth. Umperu, depru, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>